News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we've been waiting for some kind of news with the two Michaels who are in China, in prison, and there's so little that we know about what is going on with their cases. Well, now it turns out very suddenly yesterday, we find that China is actually commencing trials just within days, actually, for the two Canadians, Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig. They have now been incarcerated for 829 days without any knowledge of what they are there for, despite all sorts of pressure from countries like Canada, of course, we want them back. Even the United States has been more vocal in recent weeks about getting the two Michaels out of prison. Uh, But now we're going to find out actually what happens when they go on trial. Now, this also comes against a backdrop of changing relations with the United States too, right? And the Biden administration has told Canada that they do stand with Canada on this issue. But let's find out what that means about this whole trial situation. Joining us now is Nathan Vanderclip, the Globe and Mail Beijing correspondent who has been writing about this. Good morning, Nathan. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. What do we know about this trial situation? How is this going to work? Well, there's two trial dates. There's uh, one that happens uh, tomorrow, Friday here um, in Dandong. I'm actually in Dandong. It's a city on the North Korean border where Michael Spavor had been living. This is where he will go to trial tomorrow. And then on Monday, um, uh, Michael Kovrig will go on trial in Beijing. The expectation based on past experiences that these will be single day trials. And then the next question is, uh, what sort of sentence uh, or when, when, when might the sentence be issued? Um, and sentencing in China can be issued on the same day. We've seen that. We've also seen in other instances where sentencing can be delayed by by something like six years. Uh, so there's a vast window in terms of uh, when, when we could see any result from this trial. Right. How public will they be? Like, will you be allowed to go and see this trial? Very, very doubtful. In fact, it's, uh, um, if, if, if you look at the statement that came from the Canadian government, uh, they're asking for access to the trial itself, which would suggest that they are not confident that there'll be even diplomats will be allowed uh, to go into the trial journalists are often not allowed into even less sensitive trials. This is a trial in which China says that there are state secrets charges. And in those cases, they use those provisions quite liberally to block outsiders from coming in. Even even the lawyers for these two men, if they're willing to speak with media, will not disclose anything with regard to evidence against them or anything because they are bound by these state secrets provisions in China. Right. So, Nathan, why now? Do we have any indication why there's a sudden movement on the case? I mean, so, you know, they were they were formally charged last summer, last June. So basically any time after that, this trial could have happened. There's a few things that have taken place in the background. We have the ongoing extradition proceedings against Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver. We have the Canadian government that spearheaded this broad condemnation, a declaration against arbitrary detention, which, of course, many people saw as aimed quite uh, explicitly at China, even if the Canadian government itself didn't say so. And um, and then we also have now, um, beginning uh, on Thursday, we have this summit in Alaska between the U.S. and China. And the U.S. has been quite open in saying uh, that it is trying to push China to better treat U.S. allies, uh, one of which is Canada, and and the, the the commencement of the proceedings against Michael Spavor will sort of match almost exactly with some of those talks in Alaska. So there's that complexion as well. 
So any indication, like, is there a past history of how this might go in terms of sentencing? Like, if this has happened in the past, what do they do with these foreign nationals? Uh, well, I mean, there's uh, in terms of sentencing, I mean, it, it's very clear that things have been linked quite tightly with what's happening with Meng Wanzhou. So, I mean, I think probably the first question is going to be what's going to happen with Meng Wanzhou. But in terms of sentencing, the max sentence is life in prison for these charges. Um, and, um, and you know, there of course, sentences that are of, of a lesser nature can also be issued in five, ten years. Uh, there's a possibility of, in, in the case of Kevin Garrett, who is another Canadian who was arrested in very similar circumstances, he was sentenced to eight years in prison with immediate deportation, so he didn't actually serve that prison sentence. That's a possibility, but I think um, there's a broad expectation that uh, these men are not likely to be released from China unless Meng Wanzhou is, is returned to China. Right. Okay. Nathan, thank you so much for your time on that this morning, and best of luck. You're very welcome. Nathan Vanderclip is the Globe and Mail Beijing correspondent. Check out his work on the uh, uh, Globe and Mail website there or by the paper because he's been writing extensively about this issue. Everyone is now watching. And isn't it interesting that this trial will start happening? All of a sudden, these two trials are going to happen just when the United States is sitting down with China face-to-face for talks in Anchorage, Alaska, starting today to determine the future of the China-U.S. relationship. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about what is going on when it comes to building in this province. Critical thing, right? Resources are part of BC's economy, huge part. And now look at what's happening with lumber prices. Prices continuing to climb as the impact of reduced output from 2020 is really coming up against that increased demand from builders because it is crazy out there in housing markets right across the country and particularly down in the United States, which is a huge issue. So let's talk to somebody who really knows what's going on. It's Susan Yurkovich, the president and CEO of both the Lumber BC Lumber Trade Council and the BC Council of Forest Industry. Susan, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Good morning. How big of a deal is this right now? I understand that the prices are just crazy. Yeah, we're, we're experiencing peace, peak lumber prices. In fact, really strong demand for all kinds of building products. So not just to mention lumber, everything to do with, with housing and home renovation. And I think that's, that's, not, that's being driven by a couple of things. Number one, in the repair and remodeling sector, you've had people at home and, you know, we've been locked up with the pandemic and people have made decisions to invest uh, in new decking or to do those renovations that they've been thinking of uh, for some time. So that's certainly having an impact on demand. But also housing starts. You mentioned uh, in the opening that the U.S. numbers are strong. Uh, and they are. They're actually, you know, they have been up over 1.5 million starts annually. They're dipped a bit, little bit this month, but really strong demand for for uh, housing. And that's because the situation in the U.S. has been, there's been an underbuilding for several years. And also we have a very large group. In fact, the biggest group is bigger than the baby boomers who are now moving into that what we call household formation age group, all deciding that they want to uh, move into a home. Okay, so what kind of impact is that having? If somebody does want to build these days, what does that mean? Well, it means for, for sure it's classic case of supply and demand, and demand is very, very strong, and so prices have been high. And I think they've also been unusually high because, of course, supply chains across the globe were disrupted with the pandemic. 
So you're seeing, you know, we're moving into the building season and we've got uh, very strong demand for, for wood, wood products all over the globe. In fact, we're seeing this in markets in, in China, in, in Europe, etc. And so you're seeing very strong demand. And then, of course, that's having a price impact. As we start to look out and people start to replenish their inventories that might have been drawn down, we expect prices to moderate. But for now, it certainly means that uh, it's difficult to get supply. And, of course, the cost is much higher. Right. So is this ramping up sort of the, is there a trickle down effect, uh, Susan, like to the other parts of the industry now to churn out more? Well, you know, it would be great if we could actually step up our production and in start delivering more uh, products, particularly into the U.S. But we are constrained by, you know, the allowable cut. And that's important. And, you know, we nobody in industry wants to be harvesting above a sustainable level. And so, the chief forester sets the cut. Um, that cut has come down over years, particularly in the interior where we've been impacted by both fires and pine beetle. And so that cut has come down. And, and so we can't just, you know, start ramping up production. There are things that we can do to enhance uh, in places. But in general, uh, from BC's perspective, which, of course, we are a huge supplier into uh, the lumber market, particularly in in uh, in the U.S. and also in Asia, uh, so we can't you know quickly add supply to meet that demand. But over time, we expect that that will moderate as you know more supply starts to come online. It's also in the U.S. Okay, so when will this do you think start to ease? Then, if, if should people be holding off on paying these kinds of prices right now? Well, you know, we're <laughs> building is also done. You know, we have a building season. Weather does impact uh, the building season, and so what we are we're moving into high price environment just at the time where, you know, we see peak building season through the the spring and and of course into the summer. As you look out, you know, we're having a, a very strong prices right now. But if we start to look out into the futures in May. Um, you know, I see that the futures for May were trading around 840, so price is starting to come back down. I think you will see a moderation of prices, but I don't think you're going to see the prices back to where they were, you know, even a year ago. I mean, the, the, they were under, you know, hovering around the 300. So it's been a dramatic jump up. I expect that to moderate, but we hope not back down to 300, which is, you know, below the cost you know, it's for sure below break even. So what we'd like to have is good, strong, moderate, uh, good, strong prices, because those prices help, um, you know, us to be able to continue to deliver products into the global marketplace. Uh, They also support a whole lot of really good jobs here in Vancouver, in Prince George, in Campbell River, and all throughout the province. It's interesting, though, isn't it, Susan, that a year ago, everybody was thinking about downturn, and, and here we are in a very short period of time. It seems like it's the complete opposite. It's very volatile. And of course, you know, we've been through a year like no other. I mean, there's been a lot of disruption in this last year. Um, and so if you look at, you know, we would have never anticipated, you're right, going, it's just a, you know, a complete 180 yeah. from Whiplash. the depths of despair to, you know, to a very um, strong price environment. But what you are seeing is, you know, demand for all kinds of things that are home related. So whether it's, you know, dimension lumber or oriented strand board, panels, uh, gyprock, appliances, everything to do with home and home construction, 
the demand has been extremely strong. And I would say, you know, it's driven by those, you know, the repair and remodeling sector, the housing starts numbers that are really rebounding after a time of being really underbuilding in the U.S. And I would say the third piece is really, you know, there is a strong demand, particularly for wood, because more and more people are looking to wood as, you know, the preferred choice as a low carbon uh, building product. And so we're seeing very strong demand for for wood for that reason, and not just in home construction, but also in uh, multifamily and uh, multiple story buildings. What an interesting time. All right, Susan, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Take care. You too. That's Susan Yurkovich, who's the president and CEO of the BC Lumber Trade Council and the BC Council of Forest Industries. I mean, if you're planning to do some project around the house this year, lumber could definitely be an issue. Prices continuing to climb, and that's come up against the reduced output, right, over the past year during the pandemic. And now you've got this huge leap forward in terms of the economy, building starts, housing in particular, right across Canada in the United States. And that is really putting a lot of pressure on lumber prices right now. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We love our green spaces here in the Lower Mainland, but we also have to deal with the fact that, hey, we need roads, we need highways. But can you actually combine the two in some way? Well, North Vancouver Mayor Linda Buchanan has written a very interesting piece about taking back some of that road space, some of that highway space. So we thought, let's talk to her about this idea. She joins us now for more. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Good morning. Well, tell me about this idea that you had and how did you come up with this? Well, I think, you know, um, as I said in my op-ed, I grew up on uh, the north side of the city. So I've, I've got my own lived experience of, of running across that highway to get to the south side. Um, and I experienced that as, a, as an adolescent when I was going to high school. But it's really come up again and again over the, over the last many years uh, when I've been talking to folks who live on the north side, really about how they feel that because walking is a priority for us in the city, that walking across uh, those overpasses uh, from their side of the city to to the south side really feels it, uh, dangerous. It doesn't uh, lend itself to be walkable. It's really focused on car movement and not for people. Um, and then I actually um, was looking at an article on uh, The Gathering Place, which is a very large park in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where they had done a land bridge. And then I just started thinking, you know what, this has come up over and over and we don't have a lot of land in the city. So this is a way for us to really connect both sides of our city, uh, create more green space and really focus on people and how we're moving people in a much more safe, active and efficient way. Right. And the way you describe it, of course, it's so visual, right? The fact that so much of the North Shore is kind of bisected by the upper levels highway runs right through it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think we've seen that, you know, certainly across North America after World War II, we saw a significant amount of of infrastructure built that really dissected communities, uh, you know, as a car automobile industry um, really took hold. And um, we've seen it all across North America. And it really has damaged cities in, in terms of how they connect and how people connect with 
with one another. And I think what we're starting to see as well as we, we realize that cities have a great influence on health, we want people to be out and being active, we're starting to see more and more, you know, cities and areas start to take a look at that infrastructure and, and you know, not expand it anymore for the car, but how do we reimagine it and reuse uh, infrastructure to better serve people? So you still have the ability for people to be moving in their cars through the highway, but really we want to be focusing on, on you know, I want to be focusing on our residents and how they can safely uh, get across that inf- infrastructure um, and really complete uh, make that complete community. Right. So how do you envision that then? Do you envision almost like building a tunnel or putting the highway under a land bridge? Yeah, so basically, you know, when I started to look at the the example in Tulsa, you know, really they were cast, you know, probably similar to the Cassier Connector. You have, um, you know, they were cast um, off-site and then brought and then formed uh, along that section of of the highway. And then you would create the the park structure over uh, over top, sorry, and... And then you create those walkable, cyclable connections from the neighborhoods from the north side. And this would, you know, I sort of envisioned, uh, you know, Lonsdale uh, to St. George's. Um, really, that then connects to our, our what's going to be our new community center. It's very close to shops and services. We have students or children in, uh, in the community that are that are crossing that highway daily to go to whether it's high school or elementary school. Right. Um, so really, we can envision it. I really want the community to kind of think about and reimagine what, what if we could do this? What, what's the value proposition yeah. for this? You, mad, you mentioned uh, the gathering place in Oklahoma. That's in Tulsa. People should really look that mm-hmm. up because that's a mm-hmm. huge riverfront park that they invested in there. And now it's become a really big like tourist attraction. It's, it is like the thing that kind of defines that community now. It absolutely does, and I think it's, you know, really took, I think there was four independent-owned uh, uh, lots um, that was bisected by freeway, um, or, yeah, freeway. There was river, and they really came together and thought, how is that we, that we can bring these pieces together and, and create? What they really did is create this most amazing gathering place, which is the whole park, but that overpasses uh, the highway, connects people to the river it's uh you know an amazing park and place for people to to go to and i i just think that this would be a, uh, an amazing addition to our city uh we have the shipyards at the the lower end of our city we've got central lawnsdale and this is the upper part of our city and, and really want to connect uh connect it all together so where do you go with this idea now well, I've had initial conversations with the Minister of Transportation and the Minister of State uh, for Transportation because, of course, uh, this is a piece of their infrastructure. And I think this is the part where, you know, I wanted to make sure they are doing an interchange study right now across, you know, sort of Horseshoe Bay all the way to the to the new in Lower Lynn interchange. Um, and I wanted to really make sure that we're having a dialogue with each other about what they're envisioning for their infrastructure and what I'm envisioning for our city and what we want to see happening, um, that we're not going to be doing things that are going to interfere. Infrastructure now is extremely expensive, so we have to look at it in really, really creative ways of how we can use it much more. Um, And so, you know, started that. I've put it out there. I've gotten really positive response so far. So uh, at some point, I'll bring it to my council and and we'll look to see right now it's not within our capital plan but that's something we're going to have to be looking at 
Um, but I think, you know, what I ask people to, to really think about in, in the op-ed is, you know, imagine that we can do this and, and don't go to the initial cost of how much the infrastructure is, which, of course, is an important question. But I think we have to think beyond that when we're starting to look at, at very large infrastructure moving forward, because there is value you know, value proposition to it all. Yeah. You know, what is the cost savings if people are moving more actively now? What's our cost savings to our healthcare system? You know, what's the reduction in the GHG? What's the impact on people's well-being? Um, we now have more people that are can get to the shops and services uh, by foot or by bike uh, versus in their car. And so we actually then reduce the number of cars, um, in, improving congestion. So... You know, I think we plus we're we're actually creating land, um, so we we need to kind of think of the bigger picture of cost and not just that that initial uh, piece of infrastructure. And I think at the end of the day, if we if we actually start to to look at our return on investments, then we can see that sometimes the initial cost isn't as much as we actually think it think it is when we take into consideration what we're saving at the other end. Well, I think it's a neat idea. I like it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. That's Linda Buchanan, the mayor of North Vancouver. If you want to get a better idea of what it is that she's talking about, just Google the Gathering Place Oklahoma and you'll see the idea that she kind of envisions uh, potentially for the North Shore. I think it would be kind of neat. Certainly bring lots of value to the community. This is Mornings with Simi. We spent a lot of time, right, talking about vaccines, AstraZeneca, Moderna, Pfizer, but there's now a Canadian-made option from Quebec that is entering phase three trials. We wanted to learn all about this. So Globe and Mail science reporter Ivan Semenyuk has written an excellent piece on this, and he joins us now. Ivan, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. What do we know about this particular vaccine? Well, this is one of the vaccines that, uh, you know, a, a number of, uh, of groups, uh, companies and, and labs in Canada uh, got, got working on uh, vaccines uh, for coronavirus a year ago, just as uh, other groups around the world did. Uh, Medicago is a company that has been working on vaccines in the past. They have others uh, in their pipeline uh, for which they're seeking, uh, you know, approval and so on. So they were able to turn their technology towards COVID. And it's an interesting technology. What Their vaccine is in the form of a virus-like particle. So basically it's uh, not a virus, but it's constructed to sort of imitate uh, the virus and it can be uh, covered with the virus protein. So it sort of trains the immune system what to look for. And, uh, and, and then that, uh, you know, when the real virus shows up, the immune system is ready to defend itself. You know, there are other protein-based vi- uh, vaccines that are like this. And another one that Canada, you know, b- based in the U.S., that Canada has agreed to purchase by Novavax is some- somewhat similar. But the difference with the, the Medicago one is it's, uh, they make their proteins and they you know, the kind of the active ingredient of the vaccine is grown in plants. So they have a, a plant-based uh, production system, which is kind of interesting. And That's they cool. do this in Quebec. And they have uh, their main production facilities actually in North Carolina because they, they actually use tobacco plants for this, which, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, this is, uh, you know, they were, uh, of course, they were not as fast out of the gate as the uh, RNA uh, vaccines, uh, you know, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, for example. That's partly because, uh, you know, it takes a little bit longer to, to develop a protein vaccine and just to make it. Um, and, and so, you know, and also... 
you know, a smaller, smaller company, uh, you know, uh, a little bit harder for them to scale up. But they were always in the leading, you know, I, I would say since last summer, were in the leading position in Canada for, for a homegrown vaccine. They were the first Canadian company to have a phase one trial, so the first to have a vaccine in humans in Canada. Um, they began their phase two, so, you know, so that showed that it was right. safe. Uh, their, their phase two uh, included, I think, about a 750 people now, and, uh, and that has basically shown that it is uh, successful in raising an immune response. And, uh, you know, the early data would suggest that, that it could be quite an effective vaccine. So, but the proof is in the pudding, and that's the phase three. That's where the you know the vaccine now has to be tested with tens of thousands of people, um, and to see if it actually can reach the same numbers that we've seen right. from from the other vaccines that have been authorized. So that's where they're at now with this large scale trial, the first, uh, and it will include Canadian uh, sites as well as in the U.S., the U.K., and elsewhere in Europe and Latin America. Well, listen, I know we're going to be talking to you about it again. So thanks for letting us know all about it. We appreciate your time. I think it'll be really interesting to follow. It and will it be. Could be quite, it could be quite successful. So we'll see. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are walking a bit of a tightrope here in BC. We are trying to get people vaccinated and at the same time keeping things open enough to keep things moving. We haven't really had a full lockdown the way other jurisdictions like Quebec uh, have had to deal with with this second wave. But could we be on track to see some of that here? I mean, last summer with all the restrictions that we had, cases actually hit, what, single digits? Now we're racking up something like 500 cases a day. So let's talk about what is driving the current case count and whether or not we are going to potentially face some more lockdowns. Joining us is UBC mathematics professor and disease modeling expert, Daniel Coombs. Daniel, thanks for being back with us. Ah, Good morning. So when you look at the numbers right now, what do you see? Why are we hitting consistently this 500 number? Well, most of most of that number um, is just you know the 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 restrictions in in the province um, and especially in the the lower mainland have really been enough to you know lead lead to each each newly infected person is infecting about one more person. So we we're in this kind of stable situation, and we've been there. Um, and since you know really just after Christmas, we haven't seen uh, after after the decline that we saw um, over the Christmas period. Um, we really haven't seen much change at all. It's been very flat. So what is then driving these numbers? Is it just still too much socialization? Is it just people not listening? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, the numbers outside of the lower mainland have, have dropped a little bit, although we still hear about outbreaks, you know. Um, but, you know, in the in the areas which have been hardest hit by the, by the pandemic, it's, it's hard to say. Um, but, you know, that information doesn't get shared uh, with the public. Routinely, you know, occasionally we'll hear about an outbreak at a plant, uh, you know, or at a factory or in a, a social uh, living sort of situation. Um, but, but generally speaking, you know, it's 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 simple. We we're, we were we're we're very close to that to that point where the cases would drop, but we're also very close to that point when the cases would rise. It's just been very very flat, um, you know, and and it's just saying that the, the measures are sort of broadly working, but. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, we're not getting that final 10% reduction in contacts right. from, from people in their infectious period. It really um, is a tightrope then. Yeah, we, we're, we're right there. Um, 
but 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 in the main source of concern as I, as I think you you've talked about before on the show is um is that that you know we have us we have a effectively a separate epidemic of the uh the UK variant in the province which is which is um you know it's difficult because the the numbers aren't being released right. in a way that makes it easy to interpret but those those numbers have been have been uh, consistently rising and and doubling you know uh a lot of people are estimating a doubling time somewhere in the, in the in the week to 10 days range um and you know you can't double every week or 10 days uh without without you know reaching high numbers with you know within a few more weeks so 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 i think you know even though our, our sort of regular covid epidemic's been under control for for a long period you know if you take the numbers which come from the province at face value then we're, we're looking at uh you know a, a variant driven rise uh you know coming right. well the rise the rise is already here it's just how big is it <laughs> and uh, and um you know within within a few weeks the, those the, the variants will start to be a big factor in our total numbers and and you know, a lot of people are predicting that we're going to see the the case numbers increasing. Right. Now you said if we take the numbers the province gives us at face value, do you think there are potentially kind of more cases of the variants out there that perhaps we are not able to track? <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm sure that there are. There's all, you know, we've always known with this epidemic that there are there are people who who are asymptomatic um potentially asymptomatic transmitters. And we we know that we've always missed some fraction of the of the total number of cases. But in this case, when when I think about you know taking it at face value versus not, I actually, you know, I, I've noticed, you know, Dr. Henry doesn't seem to be particularly concerned about the variants in the briefings. You know, we we don't hear a lot about it. If you read yeah. the news com- coming from Ontario and from parts of Europe, there's a lot more concern there. So, you know, when we hear the numbers, there's always a bit more context that we don't necessarily get to hear. And and so I wonder. You know, maybe maybe there are some special factors. Maybe some of you know some of the current active cases are well controlled. They're in outbreaks that public health kind of understands, and they feel that they've got a lid on. Um, you know, it's just difficult to know from the information that that's being released uh, at present. Okay, so I'm fascinated by that because that means that you are also doing what the rest of us are doing, and that is trying to read between the lines between what's said and what's not said. Yeah, I mean, the the province did did a pretty amazing thing. You know, like they basically added a whole nother layer to their testing um, procedures and applied it to to large numbers of uh, positive tests coming in to detect these variants. You know, we're getting these numbers about the you know Brazil variant and South Africa variant and primarily the the UK variant. Um, they didn't make a lot of, a lot of noise about the fact that they'd done this kind of remarkable you know change in in, in how they were operating. Um, and, and now we're getting um, case numbers. The, the problem is it's very hard to estimate a rate of growth in case numbers if, if those numbers don't come along with the dates when those samples were, were, um, were taken. You know, so you know, if, you, if you look anywhere in the world, you can find these case counts for regular COVID. But for the, for the variants in, in BC, we're not seeing that, that the data being reported in that way that makes it easy to make a prediction. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of back to reading the tea leaves, if you want to say, and, yeah. uh, and listening carefully to what Dr. Henry says and, and puts in the written statements and doesn't seem to be um, a high level of concern, which, which makes me feel better. I have a lot of respect for public health in this province and, um, 
I'm, I'm hoping that there's, there's some sort of mitigating factors. But like I say, if you, if you just take the numbers as, as they're coming, then, then things, things are looking like we're a few weeks behind you know, Ontario, uh, Germany, Italy, where they're seeing you know, variant-driven rises. But that few weeks uh, is critical, case. right? Like that if we're a few weeks behind, is it possible that we can vaccinate enough people in that time to kind of dull the impact of the variants? Yeah, so this is this is a very difficult question to answer. Um, there's a, I've seen a couple of people in the province um, who've been, you know, building out their mathematical models to include these include these facts. Um, and there, there are two things. First of all, it's it's just difficult because you have to have a lot of things exactly correct to make a prediction on that short of a timescale. Um, but the sec- the second point is that the um, you know with the with the variant data that's available for people to put into their models right now. Um, it's hard to say. My sense is, you know, if, if you want me to, 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 to get the crystal ball out, having seen the, these modeling um, results, my sense is we will see a rise in cases. Deaths will probably stay low. Um, as for hospitalizations, I'm really not sure what way it will go. This, I, it seems to me that given the rate the vaccine is coming into the province, which, which is out of BC's control, but as, the, as given that rate, the... Uh, you know, we still have time to have a you know a bigger caseload through maybe a month from now uh, into May, which will then decline as as larger swathes of the population, and in particular those parts of the population you know that, yeah. that are responsible for most of the cases um, uh, start to get vaccinated. Boy, it sure does feel like a race against time. Daniel, thank you for your time on this this morning. Great, thank you. This is mornings with Simi. All right, local business owners, some information coming your way now about the Launch Online Grant Program. It has been uh, tweaked to make more businesses eligible. A little more money is being put in the pot, too. So let's find out more about it. Joining us now is Ravi Kailan, the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Thank you for being back with us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. Okay, so what is new here? How has it been expanded? Well, uh, as your listeners will know, uh, consumer habits have changed during the pandemic and uh, more and more people are going and purchasing things online. Uh, and we want to support our small businesses to be able to be part of that, uh, that shift. And, and so the program originally when it was announced, it was $12 million. And we thought we'd be helping about 1,500 businesses. Uh, and uh, what we found was, uh, you know, within three weeks of the program launching, we had double we had $24 million of applications come in. And so uh, we know there's a huge demand for businesses making this shift. So we've increased the amount uh, from $12 million to $42 million for, in the pot. Uh, and we're also opening it up to all service providers. So, uh, you know, massage therapists, hairstylists, um, bear viewing, uh, you know, uh, any tour guides, anyone in the service sector can apply uh, and the dollars are available for them to support them uh, to get online. Okay, so this, and this has been a big thing for a lot of businesses, right, during this pandemic, that is getting some kind of online presence. So what does this money have to be used for then? You can use this web- to get a website up, uh, to get your e-commerce set up, uh, even to you know buy images if you need to buy some images or, or get subscriptions of some kind. Uh, you can even use it for some advertising to, to promote your business. And this is not for only for businesses that don't have a site. We heard from many businesses that said, hey, we kind of put one up ourselves uh, during the pandemic just because we felt we needed to, but it wasn't adequate. So now they can get professional services to get that work done. 
So have you been hearing from businesses? Like, is this program easy to access? I know there have been some stumbling blocks with a couple of the other ones. Uh, well, you know, we haven't had any issues. In fact, we've had uh, so many applications that we had to, you know, um, uh, increase the budget four times. Uh, and so that's a positive thing. You know, all the dollars that we have uh, part of our recovery plan, you know, we want them to, to go to businesses as fast as possible and, uh, and support as many businesses as we can. And so this is a good thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the rate of change that we've seen uh, and the change from consumers we've seen this year is not about to slow down. And, and we just need to prepare for that and support our businesses to do that. Do you foresee like some kind of supports like this? Because clearly these programs are very popular. But do you foresee some kind of program support like this continuing into the future, even as things get back on track? We're going to have to find creative ways. Uh, certainly, uh, we know that innovation is going to be critically important uh, as a part of our economic recovery. It's, it is going to be a pillar of our economic recovery uh, going forward. And so uh, I know Ontario launched a similar program. Uh, their fund was $50 million, and they have three times the population. And so we're making significant investments to kind of help our businesses make that big shift. But I I really think that we're going to need to continue to find ways to support that innovation going forward. Yeah, How critical do you think is the tech sector in BC's recovery? Well, you know, it's obviously doing very well. Um, But, you know, when we think of tech, you know, sometimes we think of tech as in just, you know, some folks in Vancouver doing tech. Tech is everywhere. Uh, You know, our mining sector is uh, leading in in the world. Our forest sector is doing amazing things. Uh, If you look at our forest, uh, sorry, our um, uh, agriculture sector, the amount of technology uh, and and the companies that are starting to uh, start where they're growing food indoors vertically, uh, you know, double the pace of normal uh, with 70% less water. So, Every sector is being impacted, uh, and uh, and so we're going to be part of that and supporting uh, all our sectors in that transformation. Okay, so how long will this program be up and running for? This program will go until the money runs out. Uh, of course, it's available till August if that's the case, but uh, at the pace that it's going, I don't think it's going to um, have any room left in, in a couple of months. So uh, I would strongly recommend uh, any of your listeners that have a business um, that uh, would like to apply go on to the website launchonline.ca and and apply today. All right, they will do that. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. That's Ravi Kailan, Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation, talking about the Launch Online Grant Program. This is the program, I know because there's a couple of different ones, right? But this is the one that provides up to $7,500 to businesses to help them build or expand their e-commerce site. And they're hoping that this will allow more businesses to get online. And for so many businesses, that has been the key to just staying afloat in the past year during the pandemic. So they've had to change the way they operate. Just being able to provide something like curbside pickup or maybe even having a greater presence online has been critical. And this program has been able to help people do that. Originally, they put aside $12 million for this to help about 1,500 businesses. Yeah, they have gone way beyond that at this point. They said right now they've got about 3,500 businesses from around the province that have applied. So now with these changes, it means 30% of the grant funds are going to be reserved for businesses owned by Black, Indigenous, or people of color. And that's expanded from what they had been uh, setting aside earlier. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, you know, it's time to start thinking about getting back in the garden, planning what you're going to plant this year, and then, of course, inevitably having to deal with the pests that come along with that. It can be tough to deal with those pests in the garden and the yard without using chemicals. It can be harmful, right? So one resident of Courtney thought, huh, I sense an opportunity here. So let's talk to him about that. Cameron Ezzy is with us, the founder of Slugs and Bugs for Lunch, and he joins us. Good morning, Cameron. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Where did you get the name of the company from? Well, uh, I just I came up with it. I was running around different uh, names in my mind, and slugs and bugs for lunch just seemed to roll off the tongue. And I laughed the first time I said it, and I still laugh now. So. Okay, but you've decided that you're going to deal with ducks this year. Why is that? Uh, well... They're, they're great little animals. Their, their adaptations are fantastic. And uh, it was a way for me to uh, put energy into something that was going to benefit others. And I was going to have fun. Right. So let me get this straight. You actually train ducks to eat slugs. That is absolutely correct. I started collecting slugs by hand when they were too young to take out and walk and feeding it to them. And then as they grew older and by the time they were five weeks old, I started walking them with a staff, as a shepherd would do, uh, around the property. And when they were, I think, six weeks old, I took them out onto the road and let them uh, go for it themselves and kept them in control and been doing it for six months now and uh it's great i can walk them around gardens and they won't eat your vegetables or your flowers um i don't pretend to know everything about them but my ducks (laughs) go for the protein i absolutely love this first of all cameron i need to see this for myself where can i watch a video of this uh, you could, well, Slugs and Bugs for Lunch is on uh, Facebook and Slugs and Bugs Canada is on Instagram. And, of course, it was on Global last night. So, yeah, the uh, the attention's fantastic and I thank everyone for it. How many ducks do you have working for you right now? Right now I only have the four and I have uh, I had to cull the, the flock. They had too many males, so they had to find new homes and things like that. But I am looking to get the flock up to 12 because the health and safety of the duck are important. I walk them about a kilometer a day um, so they don't have obesity problems by eating. Because they eat a lot of slugs, I take it. Well, they eat whatever they find, and this is the thing. Like, um, if, you have, if you're in the Kermox Valley, the best time to use someone like me is while the slugs are small, because the duck can eat hundreds of small slugs. But when the slugs are three to four inches long, the ducks are going to, you know, they're an animal. They're going to get full, and I'm not going to overwork them, so... Yeah. So you're not using, this is the greatest part, you're not using chemicals to kill slugs. You're just going to no. show up with your four ducks and just let them loose. Yeah, I, I do. I, I turn up, I survey the property, make sure the fencing's good, or if I've got to be aware of something, ask a couple of questions about chemicals if you use them. And then we just go for it. I make the ducks comfortable by giving them a little bath to get in once they get there in an enclosed area, and then open them up and I walk them around. They trust me. I've been doing this for six months, so... You know, I've got a relationship with the ducks. How busy are you? How many, like, requests are you getting for work? um, Right now, not many. I'm getting a lot of support and well wishes. Uh, uh, I think what it is is we get this rain that's coming in right now and then a bit more weather, people start to see the slugs coming up. But they're not uh, prolific right now. So, you know, one or two bookings, but, yeah, they are. 
the phone's not ringing off the hook right yet. So you so, would like, so you, yeah, I was going to say it will too. So it has been busy. People must love to stop and watch you when you're working. They do. Um, the school buses stop. I have people stop their cars in the middle of the street, and then another car will come down behind them. And they're like, no, nah, this is good, man. Take your time. It's, <laughs> it, you can't plan that. Like, um, and I think this is why I'm getting the attention. Is it's just it's organic. I didn't try and do this. It's just the ducks make people smile. They certainly do. Okay, so the, what is the process like? You mentioned how you train them, but how long does that take? Well, I. Um, I just spend every day with them, walking them and calling them. And, you know, they're, they're a flock, so they're a pack animal. So you, you identify the leader and you um, get them to follow her. So, you know, it's just like, oh, I'll learn that. Okay, look at that. Oh, that just happened. Okay, well, I can use that and call the ducks. And now when I come through the gate, they hear me and they come running to me. So, Oh, my goodness. Cool. I love this yeah. already. Do you have names for them? I do. Uh, so right now I have uh, Jacko Pistorius. So he's my uh, <laughs> my logo. Um, he's Jacko was the world's best bassist, in my opinion. I'm a budding bassist. I have Aretha Franklin. I have Rosie after my mum, and Willow, who was named after a little girl around here that tagged me on on the shirt one day and asked me, "Do you have a duck named after me?" And I said, "What's your name?" She goes, "Willow." I'm like, oh, I will. Said, I do now. And you said, <laughs> "I do." I had um, Janice. Joplin and Pink, they took off and escaped the very first day. Uh, I had John Bonham and Jimmy Page and Stevie Wonder, but I had too many Drakes, so they had to get rehomed and things like that. And unfortunately, Lady Gaga fell through the ice um, in the cold snap we had like a month ago. So I'm, I'm sensing, down to four. Yeah, I'm sensing a theme here with your name. So where do you get the ducklings from? Well, I originally got the ducklings from a breeder here in Vancouver Island. And right now, I just put a, a post up on Instagram this morning. It's day eight of leaving the eggs in a nest that I believe Rosie's made inside Duck Manor that I built for them. So I'm wanting my ducks to sit on their eggs and hatch out. Um, that's, that's the goal. If so you not, can grow the family. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they're all going to be named musicians. Uh, so that's really cool. I love this. Okay, so Cameron, you know, it's, you know, they always say to people, you should do what you love. You should find a passion for it. It certainly sounds like you have done that. Do you love what you do? I absolutely do. I, I love it. Uh, yeah, have fun should be the number one rule. Like, you know, this is your life. Go and do what you want to do. Do what makes your soul happy. Oh, I that's, love it. I will certainly uh, be checking out your videos online. I think it just puts a smile on people's faces. Cameron, thank you. And listen, good luck with the ducks. Hey, and thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Anytime. That's Cameron Ezzy. His company is called Slugs and Bugs for Lunch. He is working in the Courtney area. So sorry if you were hoping to get these ducks over and you live somewhere else. Uh, essentially, he is a duck based pest control business, meaning he's got these four ducks that we know ducks like to eat slugs, right? But he has trained them to kind of go where he wants them to go and follow him around and eat the slugs in a particular area. So if you have a slug problem, you call him, he shows up with his ducks, they eat all the slugs, everything is good. The video online is absolutely adorable. So check out their website. It is Slugs and Bugs for Lunch. And I'm sure he's going to be very popular this spring.